Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we're joined from Portland, Oregon, by freelance journalist Jason Wilson. Thanks for coming back, Jason. Oh, thanks for having me, as always. Lovely to be here. It's been a little while, and it seems like it was only a year ago that we were talking to you about your your big scoops on the base. It was, yeah. Yeah. I think I might have started a craze for scoops on the base. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's year on, but it's still kind of a rich vein that a lot of other reporters are are kind of mining and very correctly perceiving this group as a kind of danger to to various communities. And so, yeah, there have been there's been some reporting in Australia about members there who tried to join or did join. So, yeah, it's 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 kind of been very. I've I've been very happy to see some really good journalists digging down on that because, you know, I kind of felt like for a while there that there wasn't a ton of interest. But I think probably now that now that COVID is receding somewhat, people are looking at other dangerous, <laughs> infectious problems. <laughs> One thing I noticed in reading some of the recent reportage and in terms of the interviews with the base's founder is they're very keen to disavow the, well, Nazi ideology that seems to shape the group. And it seems to be somewhat redundant or I, I, I'm not sure I understand why someone would pretend to describe the group in other terms than as being a basically a neo-Nazi terror network. How, how do you understand the base and what's become of it over the last year? Well, I'm not sure that there's much of a network there anymore, you know, a sort of operational network. I think that, you know, the initial reporting, which wasn't just me, included some other fantastic investigative journalists, you know, like Ali Winston and, you know, a couple of guys at Vice there who who have been borrowing away on this. Uh, But I think the initial uh, impact of of kind of the the unmasking, unveiling of the, the founder of the group and his trajectory and his history and then you know a number of uh, arrests following that and also the pressure from activists that fed into certainly laid the foundations for the kind of reporting that I was able to do and has kind of been ongoing in you know doing the research and finding out who these folks are I mean I think that membership in the base is not something that <laughs> anyone is seeing is something that's going to improve their life and Ronaldo Nazaro the founder himself 
recently disavowed having any kind of operational role, as he put it, in the, in the neo-Nazi movement. So, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't know that there's much of a network there, but, but I mean, you would know, Andy, that while organisations or networks or, or, or sort of banners that people might like to organise under, they might come and go, but, but a lot of the individuals who get to the point where they're prepared to join a group like this, a lot of those people are going to be in, in it for the long haul. So I think it's still very much in the public interest that, you know, we discover who those folks are, people who, you know, expressed admiration for Brenton Tarrant and people who, you know, attempted to join a group like that sort of months after Brenton Tarrant did what he did. I, I mean, I think people like that are, you know, potentially quite dangerous and, and should be accountable for those decisions. So, but... You know, I, I don't know that the network it's, itself is, you know, I don't know if there's much there anymore. I mean, certainly, you know, Mr. Nazaro and I are occasional pen pals. I, <laughs> we email each other and, uh, and I've, I've kept tabs on him and he seems to have lost whatever kind of credibility or juice he had, you know, in, in, in the neo-Nazi sort of acceleration as far right he seems to be something of a pariah just because of the you know the strange aspects of his history and in which that feeds into conspiracy thinking on the far right and look who knows maybe they're right i mean it's a very odd kind of situation uh with him his history as a security contractor as someone who who worked for the the u.s government in in somewhat clandestine roles and then uh, you know to, to to create a network like this i mean it is it is odd. I, I'm less and less interested in that. I mean, I think to some extent, perhaps what you see is what you get. I mean, he's just a guy who has failed to succeed in the way he w- would want to have as a, as a contractor and stuff and has just, you know, been radicalised by whatever means and has, has, has kind of acted on that basis and with perhaps with a view to having some kind of product he can pitch to people in the Russian state or, or adjacent to it. But anyway, I mean, I, I, if you're asking me whether we should obfuscate about what kind of organization this is and, and, and not call it a neo-Nazi group, I mean, I, I clearly, I, I think that we should. That's, that's what it is. And, and that was the pitch. And that's what these guys thought they were joining to pretend otherwise is not helpful. Yeah. It was sort of, um, something strange that's happened over the past year that I think you were sort of hinting at there, Jason, is that Nazaro definitely got incorporated into, I guess, the liberal Russiagate thing a little bit. Where it was, this was just another piece of evidence in uh, uh, this grander scheme of the Russians trying to destabilize the United States. But uh, you, you don't think he was a, an FSB psyop? I well, I mean, I I can't say that for sure. But at one point in the past, I probably thought that more likely than I do now. I never thought it to be the most likely possibility, but I thought, well, you know, it's worth entertaining that possibility. But just. The way in which I've seen him act, you know, is not that smart in a lot of ways, I don't think, and is not, he still seems to be able to, he, he still seems to want to recreate that moment in, you know, 2018 and 2019 when he was the sort of running the hottest Nazi organization on the block. And I, I just think it, it seems like it was a little bit about clout within the movement to him. And I, 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 I kind of do now think, I mean, there's no question in my mind that you know, that this is his politics, that, that that's not subterfuge, he's not pretending. Look, I, I don't, I still can't completely discount the possibility that, you know, he was offering this as a product in Russia to, I don't know, people adjacent to the Russian state and that someone maybe 
thought it was a good product and gave him some money. I, I can't I can't speak to any of that. But I, I don't think that I don't think it's likely that Vladimir Putin was was kind of directing this or whatever. Uh, you know, I, I think there's possibly an entrepreneurial dimension to it, but I I think that there it's probably a synergy. I think, you know, he's he's a Nazi and he was trying to organize a Nazi network is, is what I kind of think now. And, and now, look, I mean, the network he was running was very inexpensive in a sense. He was just attracting people who were kind of getting into this stuff anyway and, you know, all he did really was set up a chat room. I mean, he bought some land up in Washington State that he's probably never going to see again. But that's like thirty grand. It's not a huge uh, cost. It's not, you know, really high overheads. And I mean, this kind of operation, in the sense that it's disruptive, in the sense that it ties up the resources of law enforcement and security services here, in the sense that it promotes, you know, fear and 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 maybe further radicalizes some people who are going to cause trouble in the future and is an example of a kind of further polarization of, of US society. I mean, like maybe there's someone in the Russian state who, who would throw some money at that, you know, on the, on the basis that it's not going to cost very much, but I have no evidence for that. Uh, we do know that he was, he was trying to sell his wares at kind of conventions for, 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 for security contractors. And, and, and this may have been the product, but, that's about as much as we can say, and it's just it's just kind of becoming clearer and clearer that he he's someone who's invested in this on a, on a much in a much less sophisticated way. Like he's he's just a Nazi, and he wanted to do some Nazi stuff, and you know thought that he could make a contribution in the sense that he has experience and knowledge and skills derived from you know his experience as a whatever the heck he was for the U.S. government. What strikes me as bizarre is the underlying sort of assumption that someone who worked for the CIA in the period that he worked for them, or indeed in any period, would need to have some sort of outside influence to uh, turn them into a Nazi, like working in this highly racialized imperialist project? Right, exactly. Exactly. I mean, look, the war on terror was not explicitly constructed as a race war in 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 the way that, say, I mean, I have to say that that World War Two was in, in the Pacific. You know, for the United States and Australia, it was it was a kind of it was depicted in in state propaganda as a race war in in very explicit terms. And and you know, the war on terror was a clash of civilizations, right? It wasn't about race, but but it was <laughs> um, a lot of the uh, depictions of the war on terror in not only in conservative media, but but in 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 a lot of other media. Uh, and certainly, the political rhetoric around it was was depicting this as uh, you know a fight between you know the West and the Islamic world, and and just under the surface that was about race, you know, culture and race, and who who would prevail in that sense. So, like, it really wouldn't be a huge stretch for someone like that to you know uh, look, and I've seen it in the chats associated with the group as well. People who have not done the rarefied things that he's done, but people who are just veterans, who sign up for something that they sort of understand as a clash of civilizations, let's say, and really quickly come to view that in a racialized way and then become kind of disillusioned with that project and maybe disillusioned with the US and start coming up with conspiracy theories about what the war was all about and, you know, essentially 
There'll be anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about Jews manipulating global politics and manipulating the U.S. government. And, and you know, there's there's a kind of trajectory there that's it's pretty easy to see how people go from one step to another. Uh, and and look, he's I I want to say he's kind of old compared to the other people who have been radicalized in that way that I've observed, but we don't really know when he was radicalized, really. And so we don't know when that happened. And it could be that uh, he's been like this for a really long time and that just wasn't a, a problem for him as he was doing stuff for the United States government in its its wars overseas. You know, it, it, it just either he kept quiet about it or he didn't and it wasn't seen as a problem. That's not hard to imagine either. We don't know when he acquired these politics, although I regularly ask him over email <laughs> about the details of that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's as you say, Cam, it's not hard to imagine that either his involvement in those wars kind of pushed him in a particular direction that a lot of people have been pushed in, or he had pretty radical right-wing politics all along and it just wasn't an impediment to him in terms of serving in those wars, you know? Like, so, yeah. I, I agree. It's 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 not a really out of the box surprise or anything. You're listening to 3CR 8:55am, 3cr.org.au, 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're talking to journalist Jason Wilson about the base terrorism and other things like that. In terms of the Australian contingent of members and would be members of the base. Of the names that have been referenced in public, most, I think, have some history on the right. On the other hand, you've got um, what appears to be much younger people expressing an interest, teenagers and so on. What's your kind of assessment of the nature of those who are attracted to the base in Australia? Well, I think it's exactly as you say. I mean, it's it's a mixture of, I don't want to say the usual suspects, but, but people who reporters and anti-fascist researchers have, have, you know, known about for a while as people who are active in that kind of politics and then very, very young men who are kind of making their first steps into that world. And and that's that's the case here as well. The new blood, as it were, tends to be quite young men, very young men. And, and then the other people are kind of, in some ways, the guys you would you would expect to, to become interested in something like this. So, yeah, I, I would say it kind of fits the pattern that we've seen in the United States as well. The concerning thing about that pattern is that, you know, to the extent that I've been looking at this for a while, although not as long as someone like you, Andy, or, or indeed you, Cam, I, I mean, I, I, my concern would be that there does seem to be an unusual proportion of, of new blood, as it were, of, of, of quite young men coming into this stuff, you know, for the first time and passing very, very quickly through a process, you know, that, that leads them to sign up for what something that they absolutely understand to be a kind of insurrectionary neo-Nazi group. So, and that's the attraction. I don't know what you think about that, but that, I, I don't know if you agree that it, there's an unusual proportion of guys like that who just aren't familiar necessarily and who haven't been around this stuff for a while, but that's the way it seems to me. Is that the way it seems to you? I think so. I mean, I'm also thinking in the slightly broader context of recent conversations that have taken place in Australia about extremism and the relevant state agencies claiming that there's been a a, a radicalisation of sorts on the right where there's a greater proportion of activists and young people who are prepared to kind of, I guess, skip over 
several steps and, and simply proclaim themselves as being proud Nazis. So on the one hand, it seems you've got, you know, organisations like the base, which are attracting, you know, teenagers who are seemingly prepared to commit themselves to some kind of incipient race war. At the same time, you've got other elements on the right who have previously portrayed themselves as being uh, simply nationalist or, you know, in some other relatively benign way, now deciding now's a good time to come out and say, yes, we, you know, Mr. Hitler was a top bloke. You know, he had a great vision. We want to be more public in our enthusiasm for that sort of politics. And there's, there's, so there's been maybe several breaks on the right that have meant that perhaps in terms of the um, COVID and lockdown and other circumstances has meant that there's, a, there's been a reformulation on the far right and the extreme right, which is, yeah, both um, attracting those who are interested in more, I guess, underground or clandestine activity at the same time as there are others who are wanting to be even more public. And, and it seems that, for example, if you examine a group like the Proud Boys, having been prescribed coming under pressure in Canada and the United States, there's now talk about some kind of potential legal restriction on membership or activity here in Australia. The whole kind of debate and discussion around the extreme or the far right has kind of changed a little in the last certainly since Christchurch, but even in the last 12 months or so. And I wonder where that's going to, to lead. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, to, to, to my mind, I, you know, I, I don't feel like this was being taken particularly seriously at all until Christchurch. Maybe was seen as an American problem. Maybe was seen as kind of contained and manageable. Not sure. Yeah, there, there does seem to be people. There do seem to be people taking it seriously now, and perhaps that's because I mean to go back to what you were saying earlier that th there seems to be a greater rapidity of of whatever we want to call it radicalization. People people end up at the neo Nazi at, <laughs> at the neo Nazi point quicker. You know, I think there's a lot of reasons for that, including the kind of cover or uh, boost or whatever you want to call it that that you know the Trump election and and, the, and then the Trump administration gave to the far right in general and to other similar right-wing populist sort of upsurges in other countries. I think people thought it was okay to broadcast a pretty extreme politics in a way that perhaps it hadn't been before. I, I do think, and I want to be careful how I talk about this, but I do think that there is something to be said perhaps for the way in which a particular strand, I suppose, of, of youth culture, which which spans th this radical right politics and, and the internet and some music, you know, uh, as well, some musical subcultures kind of, in my observation, seems to, seems to drag people through those sort of stages of radicalisation that people have claimed that exist really quickly and they, they take on the whole thing at once. And it's kind of waiting there for certain kinds of alienated kind of young white men to, to just kind of pick up. Um, it's 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 out there and there aren't many barriers to it, I guess. You know, I don't know on the bigger picture what like whether, you know, the Second World War passing from living memory has anything to do with what seems to be a loosening of taboos on anti-Semitism and, you know, just 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 elements of fascist politics, I suppose. 
but yeah, I mean, I, I think something has changed. I think that I think that it's easier than ever. And I, look, I, it, it's it's important not to overstate. You know, it, it's 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 terrible that so many young men are involving themselves in this. But but relative to the the population, it's not a huge number of people. It's just it's just more than we've ever seen before. But and so I'm not trying to whip up some kind of generalized moral panic about youth culture or about young men, but but it just it does seem like if someone starts heading in that direction, uh, th- there's a kind of package deal waiting for them. And probably when taboos were stronger and it was harder to access this kind of material and information, things things kind of went more slowly, perhaps. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I I don't know if any of that is on point or off off target. I don't know what you think. I think I can't also not think of this particular or these particular questions or sets of questions without referring to a more generalised climate of in, in talking about things like accelerationism, there's political accelerationism on the far extreme right, but there's also, you know, what immediately comes to my mind is accelerating ecological collapse mm. and that being the kind of broad context into which new generations are being introduced. And it's a very, if, you know, taken seriously, and I think it should be, it's not the most, well, uh, it, it's not the kind of environment which generates positive feelings about the future. And if that's the case, in that situation, you would expect people to be more given to what's termed extremism. And so I can't, it, it's whatever else is going on in terms of, uh, you know, youth culture or subculture or mm. questions of gender and masculinity and and so on it seems that the general context is is kind of there are other things that are pointing in the direction of more extremist let's call them political expressions and i i you know uh, it makes sense in that sense and of course at the same time as you've got you know little gangs of nazis running around you also have a much larger component of um, especially young people who are going in a very different direction and, um, you know, finding opportunities to link questions of environmental justice to social justice and to create different kinds of organisation which can uh, combat, uh, I guess, uh, racial prejudice um, as well as ecological collapse that I think, uh, you know, I'd encourage I'd encourage more people to seriously, more young people to seriously examine rather than, um, you know, find refuge in uh, Nazi fantasy. But at the same time, I think that those Nazi fantasies of, um, you know, domination and supremacy do have their appeal on a kind of um, psychological level to uh, many, well, not many, but at least some young white men in Australia and elsewhere. And uh, I guess the question is, you know, I'd like to encourage others from that uh, group to be aware of and and try to develop ways of, I guess, opposing it, uh, both in the interests of those that are being targeted, but in their own interests because it's a very unhealthy path to take, in my opinion. So so I, I think as well, I mean, yeah, if we want to talk about more general factors, I mean, I think that the political right in general is just not at all drawing any red lines. In the, in the United States, in Australia, you know, there's no... I'm sure you remember that, that part of the downfall of Alexander Downer when he was opposition leader was just having spoken at a League of Rights gathering, or it might have only been a League of Rights adjacent gathering even. You know, there were some League of Rights people there. 
you know, and and that was enough to have his own colleagues kind of call time. Um, and, and there were lots of scandals like that on the right, you know, where people would be associated with some kind of anti-Semitic tendency or anyone who was seen as kind of an extremist. And, and you know, there was some kind of squeamishness about that. Probably maybe never enough. <laughs> but, but you know, it, it was there and it just seems to be completely absent to me now. And, and that's just a way of saying that, you know, we don't, as usual, we don't want to talk about extremists in a way that absolves uh, people on the right from the responsibility of, uh, you, you know, actually sort of drawing some kind of boundary as to what's acceptable, you know, um, in terms of political discourse or political behaviour. I mean, I mean, Matt Shea, who I reported on, finally got the Republican Party in, in the state of Washington finally sort of kicked him out of the caucus. But it, it took a really long time, and I, I'm, I'm not sure about whether people are going to be interested in drawing those lines in the future just because... Well, for lots of reasons, including that the Republican Party base now is is kind of effectively Trumpist, and you know you don't want to be seen to to oppose that. But that's the problem, right? That there, there's no there's there's no one prepared to risk anything to to keep, let's say, you know, white nationalism out of the Republican Party, uh, and that's you know obviously that's because in part because they have campaigned on racially divisive. Uh, sort of politics for a really long time. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that this is new in a sense, or I'm not saying that um, just recently that, that, that there's been a, a you know a failure. I, I think it's it, it's obviously a, a failure with, with with a long history. But but yeah, it's that's just a way of saying that like there's a problem in what likes to depict itself as mainstream right wing politics as well, which is. Which which has been changed by figures like Trump, and, and, and it's not that it was good before, but it's always possible for things to get worse. Of course, I think it was a month ago that Senator Marine Faruqi asked that, uh, Michael Miller, the uh, you know, level boss of uh, News Corp in Australia, were they aware of Sky News Australia's uh, the participation of uh, Lauren Southern on Sky News Australia as a regular commentator? And he said something along the lines of, I'm, I wasn't aware of that, I'm not aware of who this person is or, or their ideas, I will, you know, I commit myself to going away and, and researching the question and coming back with some kind of response. I don't know that there's been any response since. So I think in terms of there's the, the political realm, but also, you know, fairly major media institutions are prepared to, you know, tolerate uh, persons and ideas that perhaps earlier would have been, you know, considered you know, too extreme or something of that sort. At the same time, it's, as Cameron Wilson and others have noted, and yourself included, Sky News has changed its business model to the extent that it understands that Facebook and YouTube and other social media are the real key audiences, the markets that they need to capitalise upon. And actually, this kind of material is quite successful. It's become, within Australia, I think one of the more popular or the most popular news sources. There's, there's more people gain their news from Sky News on Facebook or YouTube than, say, the ABC or some other kind of institution. So uh, I, I guess while there's a, let's say, a commercial imperative or a commercial benefit to indulging these ideas, I can't see any reason why they would stop. 
No, that's right. I mean, I, I think that part of the problem that I've seen up close here in the United States is that, you know, conservative politics is now effectively directed by conservative media. And I mean that in the sense that, you know, you'll, you'll find conservative media talk radio hosts, people like Sean Hannity, who, who is also on television but has a radio show, people like Mark Levin, you know, people like, uh, I guess, the late Rush Limbaugh, although he's he's uh, shuffled off this mortal coil, uh, Michael Savage. Those hosts have, for, for decades in some cases, but certainly very aggressively since the days of the Tea Party, which was also a kind of bonanza for them, have, have kind of attacked the Republican Party from the right, effectively, in the sense that, you know, someone like Mark Levin, who's got an audience of, oh boy, I, I think it's something like 20 million people every day who are all Republican activists who are, you know, likely to vote in primaries. You know, he has just consistently attacked the idea of any kind of compromise, like like sort of parliamentary compromise or ideological compromise with the Democrats and has has consistently attacked Republicans, even Republicans like Mitch McConnell, who he perceives as making any kind of compromise with the Democrats. And and then that that is very influential on the kind of people who vote in primaries. And then what that means is that any politician with a reputation for, you know, making deals with Democrats or or any kind of ideological softness, you know, where they might try to come to some kind of compromise, even in the interests of moving stuff forward, you know they're penalised. They get primaried and they're out. And it happened. It's happened several times since the days of the the, the Tea Party. Uh, it's happened to you know uh, prominent sitting Republicans, senior Republicans. But you know it, most of it happens in those moments where we're we're distracted by a presidential election or we're distracted by um, uh, you know upcoming congressional elections, and we're not necessarily paying attention to every single little Republican Party primary, but. By by inches initially, and then then much more rapidly, you've reached a situation where Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, can be uh, can win primaries and be elected to Congress, uh, and you know, people, not, no Republican is going to say that she shouldn't be in Congress, even though <laughs> it's manifestly the case, because they don't want to be penalised by their own base, you know, for saying something like that. So it's like they never punch right, uh, even as they drift right. And so it's it's kind of like there's no there's no guardrail. I know it's an awful cliche because uh, you know the the, the, guard, the guardrails have never been as strong as we thought they were. But but there's no guardrail on the right in Republican politics. There's nothing really to stop them drifting further and further right. And and my observations in the state of Oregon and the state of Washington are that the Republican parties in both of those states have become not unelectable because some of them will always be elected, but they're never going to get a majority. And, and they, and that kind of suits some people in, in the party in the sense that they just build up personal fiefdoms and they never really have the responsibility of governing. So, you know, I, I mean, that would be my fear nationally that, again, it's always possible for things to, to get worse is, is one of my uh, credos. And I don't know, I don't think... The Republican Party is an unambiguously, openly fascist party now, or not totally, but um, I could definitely see that in its future, even if they never win elections, um, because 
eventually, if you never win elections, you, you, you know, you may find another way to attain power. So, yeah, I, I mean, that would be my concern. I don't think that dynamic is quite the same in Australia, but an entity like Sky News uh, is is very conducive to, to, to that kind of dynamic. Just back to the base, I guess one of the sort of predictable responses to some of the reporting that came out last week was uh, calls to prescribe the base. Uh, there's been a few calls to prescribe other organisations in the week since. Uh, what, what do you make of the idea of prescription, having observed this uh, sort of thing for quite a while? Well, I mean, there's nothing to there's nothing to prescribe, and and that would be my concern. It it, it, it looks like something's being done, but but you know, I mean. No one was going to join the base anyway, you know, for the foreseeable future, I don't think. I mean, I think it's kind of done. So, like, putting some organisation that doesn't even really have uh, an operational existence on a terror list is a pretty useless gesture, I think. I mean, I, I think you're, I mean, I think you're alluding to the concern, which I absolutely share, that that these groups that are, uh, Far-right groups, accelerationist groups, neo-Nazi groups will be used as, you know, the kind of thin end of the wedge, ed- edge of the wedge, as it were, to, to sort of point the anti-terrorism apparatus even more squarely at, 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 at uh, the domestic population in the United States and Australia. And, and, and it will lead to a general rise in surveillance and a, a general uh, suspicion of perspectives that uh, police and politicians uh, perceive as extremist <laughs> in, in either direction. And, and certainly that's the way things have gone in the past. So, uh, you know, the, the sentence enhancements, the, the, the domestic terrorism sentence enhancements that the Clinton administration passed in response to Timothy McVeigh's bombing were used principally early on uh, in relation to you know, what we're called uh, eco-extremists, animal rights and ecological activists who, who were radical enough to burn down buildings and, and carry out property damage, but were not doing anything like what McVeigh did, clearly. And, you know, in the early 2000s, a bunch of people fell foul of that. So, in other words, it was crafted for the right but, but ended up being used on, on, on the left, effectively, it, 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 against people who were doing something both different in effect and intention to what McVeigh did. You know, what it, what it leads to is not whether, whether or not people are actively engaged in, in radical politics or, or political activism. I mean, it, it, generally this stuff leads to a, a decline in, in, I suppose, the scope of the possibilities of, for political activism and, and uh, you know, the, the extent to which people can speak freely, whoever they are. So it's kind of bad for everyone. So that, that is my concern at the moment for sure. I don't think, though, unlike some commentators like, say, Glenn Greenwald, I don't think the corollary of that is that the, the white supremacist threat is fictional or made up or um, some kind of product of the media. I just think that there are tons and tons of laws on the books by which someone who plans a murder or plans some kind of terrorist act or carries one out can be prosecuted. I don't think we need more laws. I don't know if we need to prescribe organisations or ideologies so much as we need to both deal with criminal behaviour and also, you know, address the root causes of what leads people to be attracted to these groups, especially young people. I mean, I think 
I don't know what the answer is there. I don't have an answer myself necessarily because I'm not. That's not really where my expertise is. But I think that would be the place to concentrate uh, to, to to make sure that the society and the direction it's heading in are such that, as you said earlier, Andy, people aren't led into a, a kind of despair that leads them some of them eventually in the direction of these groups. Jason, I'm not sure if you followed it. What did you make of recent statements by ASIO that it would be reformulating its understanding of the terrorist threat in Australia, abandoning references, specific references to right-wing extremism and uh, Islamist uh, extremism to instead broadly categorise this phenomenon as belonging to, I think, religiously... Um, motivated extremism and um, ideological uh, extremism. Do you think that that's, as some have speculated, perhaps uh, a response to criticism by the federal government of some of the terminology that ASIO has used, especially in terms of identifying right-wing extremism as being a particular threat? Or do you think it's part of a general shift in the study of, let's call it, terrorology? Yeah, I, I, I kind of tend to think mostly the latter, to be honest, be- just because, I, I, you know, it's it's pretty much in line with the kind of language you see here uh, amongst the, not only the state agencies that are there to deal with terrorism, but, but sort of, you know, at least the scholars who are are, are there to, to sort of assist with that effort and, and are effectively you know, adjacent to, to, to that security effort. I mean, there are critical scholars who, who think in different ways, but um, I, I, it's kind of familiar language. I don't. I doubt that it's specifically in that case about the sensibilities of Australia's federal government. Um, it's possible, but I doubt it. I think it's more like, you know, th- this is the vocabulary and the, the paradigm that we see overseas, so we're going to adopt that too. And probably, you know, they, they imagine that as a way in which they would show that they were now taking it seriously or one way in which they would do that. But, but like, I, I don't want to, in general, uh, you know, at a broader scale, if we look at how that whole discipline and, and, and its vocabulary is going internationally, it could well be that that kind of vocabulary is emerging precisely because, you know, you don't want to put offside maybe, you know, conservative policymakers that you might have to deal with. Maybe maybe on a broader scale, that, that's what it's about. I, I mean, I, I guess I have, I have mixed feelings about this. I, I don't think that detaching it from the right is, is very good. I'm not sure how I feel about the idea of religiously motivated violent extremism. I mean, yeah, it just, it does seem like sort of, to be cop logic, if you if you know what I'm saying, you know, like like the kind of classification that is more about directing investigation than understanding the, the underlying kind of problems. But you know, maybe it's good that it's not just called this Islamist extremism anymore. Maybe it's good that there's a kind of broader category. Maybe it's sort of understood by most people that racially motivated ex- violent extremism is basically going to be on on the far right or on the nationalist right i don't know well one thing is that some of some of the interventions by some federal politicians seem to be quite intent on i guess confusing those distinctions or let's say problematizing them especially in terms of 
left and right and in the neo-Nazi context, you know, it's been a fairly, um, you know, it's been a staple of some forms of right-wing discourse for some years that if you examine the Nazis, you know, they really they were socialists, they were of the left. It, it's a form of historical revisionism which seems to be, I think, triggered by some panic over an association of, you know, right-wing principles with extremism and terrorism and a real desire to place as much distance between the two as possible for fairly pragmatic reasons. And there's a sense in which, on some level, those efforts are partly directed towards having agencies like ASIO and, and others make more definitive statements about, you know, or, or no longer paying attention to the fact that in Australia at least and also elsewhere there's, you know, there has been a history of right-wing extremism and right-wing terrorism and political violence, which is not entirely but largely absent on the left. It, there, there seems to be some effort to kind of rewrite that history in a way that's uh, serviceable to the contemporary moment. Yeah, no, you're, you're not wrong about any of that. Um, and I certainly think, like, you know, that's the... the Senator Fervani Wells, I think, was trying to kind of claim a victory in, in, in this change of vocabulary. And to the extent it's seen as a victory for her and seen by people on the right as absolving them, that's that's really bad. And um, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's what Asia was doing. But, but yeah, the way in which it contributes to that kind of um, that distortion of history is is troubling and, and, and not helpful. But, but I, I, I guess... I mean, going back to the last question that we, we tossed over, I guess my concern is at a, a deeper level or at a higher level where, you know, the terms in which state agencies talk about this stuff is always going to be directed by, you know, the, 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 the sort of imperatives of investigation and prosecution and all that kind of stuff, right? Like it is kind of cop logic in a way. The problem is deeper in that, like, my concern would be not necessarily with how they talk about those categories, but the the addition of other categories of people, you know, uh, to this sort of roster of terrorism. In other words, you know, the, the problem is with, the, I guess, with the state moving to talk about domestic groups in the same way that they have been content to talk about Foreign groups, you know, uh, in other words, in the language of uh, of terrorism, you know, to, to, to define new categories of terrorism. So it's the specific vocabulary is less troubling to me than, than what I see happening, you know, in the, on that macro scale where, where states like Australia and the United States are now kind of perhaps uh, the wars in the Middle East have exhausted themselves as the basis for entire industries of, you know, CVE and counterterrorism and all, all of that's now coming home. Not that I thought it was great when it was overseas, but, but I just feel like the move to reclassify things and the move to, uh, you know, to, to put things on a professional footing, as it were, <laughs> is, is as troubling to me as, as the way they, they kind of choose to talk about it. But I totally take your point as well. I just wanted to ask you about uh, how the Proud Boys are faring uh, currently, given that you've been examining them in the states for a while, and they've uh, they've been, they've popped up on various occasions here in Australia, and they seem to have, um, you know, of all the uh, patriotic formations, 
on the rise. They seem to be uh, leading the pack at the moment. Yeah. I, look, I think in terms of the Proud Boys, the problem they have here at the moment is that a whole bunch of their leaders are, look like they're about to be, to have conspiracy and maybe even sort of racketeering charges added to what they're facing already. So prosecutors who are looking at the Capitol riot case uh, are really either have already or are really looking like they will add conspiracy charges to to those already, you know, being being levelled at Oath Keepers, uh, Proud Boys, etc. cetera. Uh, I think those guys are getting a hit, hit with conspiracy conspiracy charges. So that makes everything much more serious. That kind of compounds any crime that they may have committed um, and involves sentence enhancements and, yeah, you know, I, it's even more trouble. So, so everyone who was involved in that, I, I mean, I think probably there are fewer active Proud Boys than there used to be, but the problem is that the ones that are left are um, perhaps even more committed than they were. So... Where I am in Oregon, I mean, today a bunch of Proud Boys, among other people, got together in a little town east of Portland and then drove in a convoy down to the state capital, Salem, in order to drive their trucks at speed, sort of through a crowd as a kind of counter-protest. And, you know, there was there was sort of some of their cars got smashed up. There may have been some violence. You know, and that, and that was all Proud Boys. So the ones that are left are really seem to be more even more enthusiastic than... The organization was before about putting themselves in positions where they're provoking situations and getting involved in violence. But I kind of tend to think that, I mean, again, I think we've seen this dynamic before, like with the militia movement, for example. So something gets to a certain sort of threshold and then, uh, you know, a far right group gets to a certain or, or movement gets to a certain threshold then there are outrageous acts of violence or insurrection in the case of the capital associated with them. And then that that tends to peel a lot of people off who, who maybe either feel like they didn't sign up for that or are suddenly kind of faced with what the reality of that is. Um, so I think they're probably smaller. I think they're still going to be around. I, I mean, they're, they've divided. There's been some contention the leader, Enrique Tarrio, was revealed as having been a police informant um, in years gone by, and that led some chapters to break off in the wake of the Capitol riots. And, you know, it's not looking as robust as it once was, and, uh, you know, having police actually push back on them is not something that they seem to enjoy, and that has happened to some extent. I, I, w- I would say, like, like the QAnon folks, like the Trump movement itself, I mean, there's a sort of... Um, fork in the road that a lot of people have reached. And, you know, one fork leads to more sanctioned forms of political activism or, um, uh, you know, maybe just, uh, you know, stuff that's within the normal bounds of liberal democratic political practice. And the other fork leads to greater radicalisation and, and more violence and more confront- even more confrontational uh, kind of forms of activism. So I, I think, like... You know, if 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 history is any guide, the majority will either just retreat from politics altogether, or find less personally uh, risky ways of expressing themselves. But a minority are clearly going to keep doing this stuff, and they're they're going to keep trying to get themselves in situations where, yeah, they can have violent confrontations with their perceived enemies. So that's where I think they're at here. Australia is slightly different, of course. 
you know, there's a different dynamic at play there and, and possibly they still have more room to grow there. I'm not sure, but um, that's how it's looking here to me. Well, that's a nice grim note to end on, as per usual. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, look, here's the thing. I think that, I don't know, have we spoken since the election? Yes. Ah, oh, okay. I, I was just going to say, the way I thought that the election might go and, and the consequences of that might be, I mean, yeah, it's bad, <laughs> but it's going to be bad for a long time um, until we sort out climate change and some of those other things Cam was talking, uh, sorry, uh, Andy was talking about. It's, yeah, it's bad, but it, but, but it could have been much worse. Um, and yeah. Well, we've spoken since the election, uh, but I think it was before... January 6th, and basically everything that you'd been warning about for a little while yeah. looked uh, like it was about to play out. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's where we're at. I mean, I, I, I've still got, I'm still very busy reporting on this stuff, so it's not going to go away either. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Jason underscore A underscore W on Twitter. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, indeed. Cheers.
Kafiyas are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafiyas, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafiyah to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kufiyas.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Like everyone, people who are LGBTIQ+, can experience suicidal thoughts. Living Works deliver workshops that give you the knowledge to help others in the LGBTIQ+, community. Thanks to Northwestern Melbourne Primary Health Network, from now until the end of May, Living Works is offering workshops for the LGBTIQ+, community completely for free. Visit livingworks.com.au to learn how you can help save a life. Northwestern Melbourne Primary Health Network is a 3CR supporter.